Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the news. And uh, there's going to be an unusual news here today. But before I even plunge into that, I mean, maybe they're all unusual, but um, they're all unique. Uh, I should. We should all say happy birthday to Betty White, who's 98 years old today. Yes, wow. Betty White. Yes, but everybody loves Betty, Betty White. So, um, so there's that. Uh, I'm going to introduce the panelists in just a second. Uh, actually, I'll introduce the panels right now. That's a good idea. Uh, so uh, joining us today, Tanisha Dugan is a producing associate at Theater Works. James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Uh, in the second half of our conversations today, we are going, or second segment anyway, we are going to talk uh, about the movie 1917, Sam Mendes' uh, hero's journey based very much on stories his grandfather uh, told the family about his own World War I experiences. Uh, it's now major Oscar bait. It won Best Picture in the Golden Globes and Best Director. And there's all kinds of other critical backlashes going on. Anyway, we'll come to that. Um, and we may also, we probably will towards the end, even though I'm a little tired of it right now, but uh, the panel hasn't been heard from on this on the subject, the often sore subject of Oscar nominations. So we, we'll probably get there at some point too. Here at the beginning, actually, no, before I even do here at the beginning, let me just tell you a couple other things because they're important to know. This is probably the last nose for a while because uh, we will be preempted by the impeachment trial starting next week. Uh, we will be preempted every day. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's one of the reasons that we built a whole new show about what? About a month and a half ago, we decided that we would uh, build a whole new show called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. That runs on uh, Saturdays at noon. Episode 7, I believe, is dropping this Saturday uh, at noon. It's a really terrific episode full of interesting stuff. Um, that's going to work pretty well, I think, because the impeachment trial will start at 1 o'clock every day, starting Tuesday and going for weeks and weeks and weeks, presumably. Um, so we will be on Saturdays at noon for an hour right before the trial starts on Saturdays. Please also check out Pardon Me in your podcast feed. We haven't really figured out exactly what we're going to do with the Colin McEnroe show during this time. We're going to have a big conversation about that uh, uh, on uh, Tuesday to see if we can come up, come up with some kind of plan to continue. Because we actually do have some podcast listeners and we have 9 p.m. listeners and stuff. So anyway, that's all just so you know. Uh, but no no's for a while, I don't think. Um, yeah. So we're the – we're, this is the last news until we get some resolution here on impeachment. Uh, all right. So um, in the first half of the first segment, so we I, I'm going to be honest, we really struggle a little bit. You know, we, we send a lot of emails around uh, as we're kind of getting ready for the show and no real exact consensus emerged. I was interested to know whether people were interested in the Jeopardy Greatest of All Time tournament, which I've sort of gotten sucked into. Uh, also, the baseball cheating uh, scandal, which I knew this panel would not necessarily be interested in um, or aware of, probably. How yeah, how did you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, and there were some other stuff that got kicked around. Uh, and, but actually, the thing that we kept coming back to, not in my opinion, because it's a good idea, but it's <laughs> but because it's a good idea to have a conversation about whether it's a good idea, uh, was a proposal by Tanisha that we should theoretically be interested 
in the Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston possible reconciliation. <laughs> and, and, and I will point out also cinematically, and this will please James, that the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants. Thank to, you. To, I was like, let's let's give the proper due. Yeah. To, well, today also in, in the, new, the, C, uh, the Connecticut Public Newsletter, the daily newsletter put out by our radio operation here, uh, he wrote the introduction and he pointed out that there was a brief time when there were a whole bunch of movies about – well, not a whole bunch, of, but uh, some movies about couples getting married for the second time and stuff like that. So, uh, And some of us here are old enough to have lived through Liz and Dick, and I guess this is Liz and Dick all over again. Um, so, But the question would be, is this something that a public radio audience would want to hear us talk about? And so at that point, uh, Tanisha, in her <laughs> usual role as email provocateur, <laughs> used the phrase – performative intellect, yeah. which I really liked a lot. But explain what you meant by that. So first I have to clear my name. I was not <laughs> the one who suggested Jen and Ben. It actually came through by my lovely friend, Mr. McNichols. And I thought, well, yeah, in agreement with Jonathan, we should be talking about things like uh, Jen and Ben. You all know I have Brad. advocated. <laughs> oh, wrong. Yeah. Brad, Brad and Jen. Yeah. Uh, Jen. And I have advocated long to talk about the Kardashians because I feel like they are so central to our culture. I, I agree, funny. by the way. I, I, think, <laughs> I think it's bad that the nose has been on the air so many years and we've never done a Kardashian yeah. episode. So I'm down with that. If we ever get our this show back under our control. That I would, would be the first thing. Well, I don't know if it's going to be the first thing. I, dang it. I can just hear Jacques Lamar cheering <laughs> yes. right now. But I, you, yeah, but I think, you know, the idea that we wouldn't talk about Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt because it feels too gossipy and poppy um, belies uh, a assumption that the public radio listener is too highbrow to care about that. And I think that's false. I think uh, it's as false as assuming every public radio listener is a Democrat. <laughs> I think uh, they cover uh, a wide swath. And I think public radio, by virtue of it being public and free, uh, is meant for us all. And so we should be sort of inhabiting all of the culture. And I think Jen and Brad... Why did I say Jen and Ben? I don't know. Ben Affleck, perhaps? No. Um, it rhymes. Don't that sounds better. <laughs> it's already sounds confusing better. enough. Yeah. Ben, the, the, ben the rat? Ben the rat. Um, that I think that there's something about that relationship that is interesting to us. Yes, because they are beautiful people. But I think we all can speak to a love that we lost, that we long for, that we ha still consider or think about or wonder how that would affect our life today. And whether or not that is true of them, heaven knows. Yeah. But I think we are putting that on top of them, and that's why it keeps coming back. I mean, the great happy ending, I think, for all of us would be to see them back together just because it feels like a happy ending. The, the sort of beautiful vixen gets thwarted <laughs> and that there was a real, true, loving relationship all along. I think we should be talking about those things, both because they're silly and fluffy, but also because I think that they have um, 
narratives that are, are real to us. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe in their defense, they are the stuff of poetry. I mean, you're describing a W. W. B. Yeats poem, basically. <laughs> so, so I guess you could say that. First of all, I also want to say that uh, if you want to participate in this conversation in real time, or whether you, not, whether you think this is a good idea or whether this is exactly the reason that you listen to public radio because you want to avoid these kinds of conversations, <laughs> uh, you can tweet right at us, at WNPR, Colin, and perhaps you should. Um, so I don't know, Irene. Uh, Irene, one of the so, – like Irene is the middle child in all of our nose family. She's always trying to kind of put everybody together and sort of saying, no, there's a way in which everything that you're, you're all advocating for or against, it all adheres and congeals and becomes what we refer to as a Papulian through line. And I could sense you doing that, seeing if you could somehow or other link the baseball cheating scandal <laughs> to Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. But do, do I mean, what, what's your reaction to all this um, at this point? Yeah, well – um I, kind of, I definitely agree with Tanisha in the sense that it's there and it's in the culture. And I think, well, the, I mean, the link, it's easier to talk about the link once, once we lay out what the other <laughs> elements are. But there's something about the idea of loyalty and disloyalty and cheating and wanting to be the best and wanting to be number one and wanting to be chosen um, that maybe is a thread through things that we're going to say. But I think especially, you know, there's a lot of couples that break up and get together. But there's something about this one because to me it's because – Jennifer Aniston is kind of like us. She's more like us than a regular movie star. At least I'm sure she's not really, but that's how we perceive her as kind of because there's something vulnerable about her and she's not cool in the sense that, you know, the vixen Angelina Jolie is or Carving definitely was. Carving her lover's name in her arm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and she and she's just – there's something sort of ordinary about her and it's sort of like, okay – when he got with Angelina Jolie, it's like, whatever, she didn't have a chance. You know, she, she, he was just seduced away and there was just like no way. And so the thought that now, all these years later, he might actually go back to his, re, you know, to her as though she were, um, first of all, it's not like they're getting married. You know, <laughs> we don't even know if they have any kind of, you know, we don't know what's going on. But the thought that now they're both single again and maybe that's, that was his real love, like, somebody more like us, like a more ordinary person, is kind of, I think, culturally compelling. And it's interesting to think about why that is. I thought his real love was Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> uh, it's so, uh, yeah. I was so, about to say a gent. that. <laughs> he said, he, yeah, the, I love that he said he's a gent yeah. at, the, at the Golden Globes. So, James, I don't know whether you're bursting with things to say about this or dreading me going to <laughs> you, but I, I'll throw you at least a life preserver in case you and, – and I think one of the – I'm glad that Irene said what she said because I've always thought about Jennifer Aniston. I mean, she She's really, I think, explicitly not Elizabeth Taylor, you know. Right. Uh, and we go to m movies to dream a lot. You know, m movies often say, OK, for the next two hours, you don't have to be realistic about life. You know, you can imagine yourself with Elizabeth Taylor or with somebody, somebody just larger than life. I mean, or to dream about something, whatever the movie is about. You're, you're there sitting ideally in a beautiful dark theater like Trinity Cine Studio, giving yourself into the dream. And, and this is maybe a little bit of the way that the dream spills out of the theater and into the alleyways and into the streets is if you start knowing things and thinking things about the people you see up on those screens. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that that's the core of it, really. It's, it's like the public life. Living a public life means that you're projecting an image, and it's coming from a place which definitely intersects with 
what people's aspirations are, what they would like to be true, and especially if it's somebody who's charismatic and somebody who um, somehow uh, strikes a chord about possibly being more human than the image that they have projected in movies or in theater or wherever it is. And I, I, I think that um, the, the idea that somehow um, Brad Pitt is somehow coming home, if you like, to this mm. this more sort of uh, this was his soulmate kind of thing that, that Jennifer Aniston represented that kind of thing it also has to me a, a slightly um, something uncomfortable to me, which is the way that Angelina Jolie is projected, her image is projected and how um, there are all sorts of intimations of her being – you know this this uh, almost bullying character, but yet she takes care of all these children and she's like it, Meghan Markle. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's somebody who makes the public uncomfortable on a certain level, and I think that that's uh, I would say listening to her sometimes talk so passionately about what she does for most of her life uh, that that's that that's real because people are people are not particularly comfortable with somebody like that who is a movie star sort of image yet is very self-aware and is a very strong person and who gives the impression at least in public of of um, really knowing how to keep Brad Pitt in his place in a way. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's God. a very complicated public thing. And that's why I think it's kind of interesting to be having this discussion on this basis that, that trying to sort of bring in threads of what real life is like and why mm-hmm. people admire people who are projecting an image and in fact who spend lots of money projecting an image. I mean, I, that is such a great point I, and, and I, I, I think that's really interesting and it makes me – because I was thinking the thing about Jennifer Aniston is she – we know she's trying really hard. We can see her trying really hard mm-hmm. to, to just be – to be loved you know, and in a way, what I'm hearing you say is that Angelina Jolie just acts out of her own principles, her own morality, her own self, without necessarily exactly. doing the movie star thing of love me because I'm so pretty. And she's or, her background uh, with her conflicts with her father, for example, were yeah. you know, I mean, that must have taken a great deal of self awareness and determination to fight back against what she had to fight back against when she was growing up. Listen, so, if you had Joy, John Voight as your father <laughs> and you got through it with any shred of sanity yeah. left, um, that's – that's well, you know, I mean, Tanisha, I guess another thing I, that I think about all this is we – already somebody named Alec is on the Twitters begging us not to talk about this. <laughs> too, late, too late. So, I mean, I now as, as everybody's talking, I'm also thinking about the movie Marriage Story, which actually mm. is an Oscar mm. movie. Yeah. And it's about two creative people. And, and I think – what are the things about creative people? One of the reasons that we can tick off the Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, you know, multi-decade um, show business marriages on probably, you know, one of our hands is that creative people are constantly trying to newly create. They're mm-hmm. trying to make everything different. They're trying to, you know, so Lindsey Krauss runs off, uh, leaves uh, Robert Duvall and runs off with David Mamet because these are people who are – in a certain amount of self-engendered turmoil anyway. And they, they are interested in chaos. They're interested in destruction that leads to more creation. And, and I, I do think unsettled people like this probably are more likely to be the creative people. I, you know, I, I, uh, 
sort of rub against the idea that it is a, a, a longing for destruction, although I don't want to deny that to be true. But I do think that it's it's about reinvention and about uh, being a new person and having the freedom to, to be someone different every day, every month. I mean, that's the thing that I find attractive about being an actor. And I think that's the thing when we're watching these people become different people, so much so that when the magazines capture, you know, Chris Pine in the midst of a of a, a superhero movie, he is literally like four times bigger than the dude, you know, when he's not working at going to the grocery store. And that our perception into culture allows us to perhaps consider changing ourselves, that we don't have to be the character that we that we wrote or started to write from childhood, but that there's a possibility. And again, I'm going to separate it being destructive because I think that stops us from doing the thing. There's a chance for us to rewrite who we are, and that doesn't exist in a binary. What's interesting to me about the Jen and Brad saga is that we've decided these women live in this binary. There's the good girl and there's the bad girl. Right, uh, exactly. And that they yeah. can't be uh, nuanced. And yeah. the the conversations when we get to highbrow and lowbrow culture for me is how do we elicit the nuance? How do we actually force ourselves away from the binary and use these as sort of uh, uh, myths to tell us a little more, to give us a little more? I, the other thing that I, I was struck by, I emailed you guys about this too, but and I don't know that this adds to the conversation in any particularly useful way, except that, yeah, we dream, we go to movies to dream, and like there's sort of no Elizabeth Taylor really on earth. I mean, obviously there was one, but I mean, that's sort of not who you but run into. But she wasn't. Yeah. She wasn't Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> exactly. Right. She, even she, even yeah. she wasn't Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. And when I see Brad Pitt, I have a kind of a similar reaction. I was talking in, in the emails about how I recently rewatched A River Runs Through It, where he is... He's beautiful in a way that kind of transcends sex and gender and humanity. I'm thinking this is like the most beautiful person and he's this wonderful trout fisherman, you know, and and he's just the gods have created this perfect thing that they now have to destroy. Not for nothing did he also play Achilles in a not very good movie. But, um, you know, but he's sort of that way when you see him in in some of those roles. He's just – has a kind of perfection mm. to him. Nick Nicholas quoting, everyone wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. It's something mm-hmm. that Cary Grant said. You know, there's that sense anyway that we see these people and like I've never seen anybody. I've seen, I know lots of people who look kind of like Jennifer Aniston. You know, mm. I've never mm. seen anybody who looks like Brad Pitt. You know, not in the movies anyway. But then the question is, well, it's a movie. You know, maybe he's not, maybe he was never that. Well, I think he's also a person who is unusual as an actor in that he uh, most of the time has not been trapped in his own ego, mm-hmm. which is so frequent. So it happens to so many actors, I think, that um, they lose track of actually who they are in that process. And then it becomes something that um, they they can become really obnoxious if that goes too far. But I think that he's unusual in that he's taken parts where – he really has not amplified his ego. It's actually unease that has been part of his his act. And um, that's something kind of different, which makes him interesting as an actor in a way that is unusual. He's beautiful and likable, right? right? And yeah. those things aren't supposed to... Or, or, 
Yeah. yeah, or Irene, you made the point in the emails that Helena Bonham Carter, who mm-hmm. the first few mm-hmm. times you saw her, was this kind of radi- radiant ingenue, yeah. and immediately kind of proceeded to destroy that in a way that James is kind of talking about, like just not insisting on being that person. In fact, maybe even going to the opposite st- extreme. Exactly. The movies Absolutely. like yeah. movies like Fight Club, choosing kind of a real kind of deliberative skankiness. Yeah, exactly. And I think because um, maybe he, it would be hard, you know, like to be born with that kind of beauty is not a result of him doing anything, mm-hmm. you know, except working out all the time or whatever, you know, <laughs> but everybody does that. I'm sure there's you know? products. Yeah, there's products, <laughs> surgery, okay. Filters. But yeah, but the people, you know, there's certain actors who have that just sort of transcendent beauty and they, it's almost like they don't know what to do with it either. You know, so that what you said of him, what James said about not living up to, to you know, not sort of being an egotist about it. Some people turn into egotists about it. Like, I am great because I'm beautiful. But somebody who has some kind of resistance to that, I think, can get really sort of uh, stuck or, you know, because it's like they he knows that he's not that beautiful person that Colin yeah. saw. And I think so it's hard not to. I mean, my, my oldest was born very good looking. And people give him things because he is good looking. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I've never ex- like I am not a beautiful person. I was never given things because I was in a space, right? And so to watch this happen with this child and to think God bless him. I hope that he normalizes. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. think some of that is happening. But I hope his looks sort of uh, I say this because I love him, dissipate a little bit because I think it's hard mm-hmm. not to be self-centered when the world hands you things exactly Exactly because you said because he didn't I mean it was really his father and I (laughs) gifted him with that and and in in the process grows from actually being uneasy of Mm. developing unease and I always think of something if you look at the Shakespearean performances by Laurence Olivier there's a growing unease and of course he was living a double life and uh his unease projected into the character and every character had more threads of that mm-hmm. unease that he could be this uh, you know, greatly revered Shakespearean actor and yet he was a person who you felt could break and that is something – I think that's a great gift and not easy for the person who's going through it. But, but it's what we really want to see. Yes, we don't, exactly we, we don't right. want to see the person who's just perfect and beautiful, exactly right. period. We yes. want to see the unease – inside that and yeah. then that makes it more interesting. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it is, I mean, to that point about, you know, the things that you got, there was a terrific episode of 30 Rock in which Tina Fey was dating a character played by John Hamm and the joke was that he had a completely distorted idea of himself. He thought he was a better tennis player than he really was, <laughs> that he was funnier than he really was, that he was smarter than he really was because he had been living in what they referred to on the episode as a bubble. Mm-hmm. He was just so good looking that no one was prepared to tell him that he was a lousy tennis player. You know, or that that shot was out, you know, or or that that joke wasn't funny. Um, and, and yeah, that, I mean, that would be a weird way to live. We but, love the yeah. best and we protect the best. I mean, this to do the Papillion thread to baseball. I mean, there are elite baseball teams and they will cheat up and down. I loved how much Jonathan was like, let's not forget the Red Sox are cheaters, too. And I thought to myself, you're not wrong, but they are the best and we protect the best in the same way that we protect the beautiful. Um, and we do it against our own self-interest frequently. And what does that mean? Does it mean that our adjacency to bestness somehow makes us 
the best too? Our adjacency and kindness to beautiful people makes well, us beautiful too? I don't know. It's the unease that, that yeah. lies behind that, yeah. that, that success and, and adulation. There's a little voice in the background always there that is possibly doubting that. Mm. I yeah. think – Alec is in the process of forgiving us on Twitter. In, in fairness, <laughs> well, thank you, Alec. I, I appreciate the way you're talking about it. I love NPR for the perspective it gives on facets of life. I wouldn't seek out on my own. Thanks for your voices all. Uh, just one thing that I wanted to say is, you know, we uh, – because as Irene was valiantly trying to construct one of her Papulian through lines, I thought, you know, one of the differences between sports and, say, the arts – I think anyway, is the measurable and as John Updike, uh, John Updike put it, the tissue thin difference between a thing done ill and a thing done well. You know? And it's one of the reasons that athletes cheat because they're all amazingly good. Uh, and, and for one of them to prevail over the other, you know, they're looking for any advantage they, they get. So this, this baseball scandal is very much about you know, if a ball can be thrown at you as they r- routinely are these days from the mound to the batter at 100 miles an hour, but it might be coming at 78 miles an hour, to know that – I mean you – none of us here would be able to hit either one of those pitches. <laughs> but for, for this other superb athlete to know which one was the case is a gigantic advantage in their world. I know. It's so funny. Like it's curving. Like yeah. how, how do they know it's curving? It happens so fast. Right. So yeah. but whereas I think in, in – one of the things I've been thinking a lot about the movies this week because you know, these arguments burst out about Oscar nominations and I, I think – well, it isn't really possible to determine whether 1917 is a better movie or a worse movie than Parasite because there's no, there's no criteria. It's all completely subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we, there's consensuses that build up. There are critical arguments that are concocted and stuff like that. But we don't really know. You know, we know Usain Bolt is faster than anybody. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, we really know that. Because you can measure. And, yeah. and yet yeah. the, I think the reason why – for me, it's always exhausting to have these conversations is that we are determining the best. And I know what those are going to look like before they show before the Oscar nominations show up. I know that a war movie about 19, you know, and set in 1917 centered around a beautiful blonde white boy is going to be considered the best of what we make. I know that. And so if if we want to sort of shift what the best could be, I, I, I actually suggest that it's not subjective. We actually know exactly what will be put in front of us as and what we will be asked to judge as the best. Right, we so know it makes that. Parasite quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, we know, right? we know that, but we don't – but the, we wouldn't have a way of kind of resolving that in a but different that direction. Is, I actually don't think that we know that mm. is – Enough, right? I, to me, oh, yeah. we know that is is the ultimate in dismissing the fact that there's no opportunity for the best to be shaded or look like something else, right? Right. Which would I be, would like us to not know that. Right. Actually. Well, I mean, <laughs> look, yeah. the, the way to fix that someday is to take the nomination process away from voters and have a thirty person jury that you know that figures out the nominations, then let everybody vote on who actually wins the award. Or understand yeah. that voters are um, skewed a certain way. <laughs> All right. So I'm getting told now that we're – see, Jonathan was worried we wouldn't find anything to talk about for the first half hour. We're actually now late for the break. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about that uh, beautiful blonde boy walking through the ruins of Europe in 1917. Starring in the movies of our And the Academy Award for Good Times goes to
All right, we are back. We are back with the nose, uh, and we're actually going to come. Actually, that as that was a really great segment. Uh, and Tanisha Dugan, uh, James Hanley, Irene Papoulis are all here in studio. Uh, we are now going to talk about yeah, maybe something a little bit more typical of the nose. It's the movie 1917. It's directed by Sam Mendes. It's set in World War One. It is based on uh, loosely on stories that Mendes' uh, grandfather told of his own time as an inf- infantryman. Let's hear a little bit from the movie. Uh, this is, I mean, we should say there are a bunch of famous actors like Colin Firth and Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch in this movie, but not for very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so here's a little, so don't be deceived. You're about to hear a long Colin Firth speech is he basically lays out the premise of the movie uh, to these two uh, uh, corporals uh, to whom he is giving orders. Colonel McKenzie is in command of the second. He sent word yesterday morning he was going after the retreating Germans. He is convinced he has them on the run, that if he can break their lines now, he will turn the tide. He is wrong. Colonel McKenzie has not seen these aerials the enemy's new line. Come around here, gentlemen. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defenses, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Lacoste. Deliver this to Colonel McKenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions, 1,600 men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. So, James, this film is uh, in uh, critically had kind of a roller coaster r- r- ride where it was embraced pretty rapturously by a lot of critics, and then it did win the Best Picture Award and the Best Director Award from the Golden Globe. And then some of the same critics started worrying. I heard this happening on the Slate Culture Gab Fest. They were worrying that it was going to edge out Parasite, his best movie of the year. You'd think that that would not even be something that normal people would worry about while they're actually considering the merits of the film. So let's sort of try to back away from that and um, just tell me what you thought of the, of the movie. Well, the movie itself, I have to say I was absorbed by it for the whole length. I didn't, it didn't flag for me. But um, I, my general sort of short answer is that it's a, an interesting movie but not a significant one not one that I will remember for a long time. It raises a lot of questions about the future of cinema, I think, actually, which is one of the most fascinating things that one of the greatest photographers of all time, Roger Deakins, actually has made a very digitally apparent film. Um, Much of the film has a digital work, of course, but I said in in one of our exchanges, I think that I I almost had the feeling that, you know, I'm always worried about people watching Citizen Kane on a cell phone, you know, like, please don't do that. But in this case, I was worried that actually somebody, a photographer like Roger Deakins could make a film that seemed like it was made for a cell phone with this, uh, the, 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 the conceit of the film is that it appears to be one take, which of course it's not because digital technology allows you to create all sorts of tricks that make it look like that. But the fact that it was in the faces of these characters and um, the the main characters um, made it unavoidable 
in terms of how the how the actual physical nature of the film addressed the audience, which was right in their faces all the time. And it links to with something that I think is very significant that you mentioned, Tanisha, which is um, the the racial component of this that here you have one of the you know, sort of the blonde uh, white hero um, who's uh, who's very much the center of the movie. But the story of the First World War, I did some background research. I mean, I knew some of these things, but the story of the First World War is really interesting in terms of its composition. People from the Caribbean actually paid their own way to come and fight with the British forces. Hmm. Um, there were 1.3 million Indian citizens who came to fight, uh, including many Sikhs. And we, one we do of, see what we of do those. see. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. But, but, I'm just one. getting to that. Actually, yeah. that's kind of interesting. That there are more than there's more than one Sikh actually, and there's one <laughs> very dark-skinned black man in one prominent shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that struck me was, uh, is it actually true? And I really don't know this. Is it actually true that the forces were integrated? That they actually would have been together because the American forces were not. The American forces were in segregated units. And would did the British actually have Sikhs who were serving alongside white yeah. soldiers? And and one last thing, the the Sikhs seemed to be in their forties, and the the white guys seemed like teenagers. Mm. And you know there were a lot of elements there that were sort of symbolic that that were part of this construct, which gets me to the, the, the sort of conclusion of this, which is that this movie is a construct of images and, and ideas that I, they make me curious about our, what is true and what isn't true mm, about this. I think, um, okay, so one of, you know, my um, boyfriend is a Caribbean historian and, yeah. um, uh, uh, and one of his first reactions after the movie was, wow, I've never seen a World War I movie that shows it like it really was in terms of the integration of the racial integration in the body of, of the, you know, uh, among the soldiers. So, and so he was saying that, yeah, that is how it was, but we don't usually, th- we u- usually think of all the white guys going to war yeah, in right. that war. I see. You know? okay. So, but, uh, you know. Yeah. It's so, you know, I, I've been thinking about, you know, what you've been saying about this movie feeling like it was shot for a small screen. And I think some of what came out for me is that not just a small screen, but shot like a video game. Yes, shot as yeah. if I were yeah. a player in the video game exactly. because I'm yeah. always on the shoulder of the soldier in front of me or getting this sweeping shot of, uh, you know, a 360 degree look at the person that I think I'm supposed to be playing or playing with. Yeah. Um, and I loved when you you were talking about some of the last scenes and you were like, it reminds me of Wonder Woman. And I thought, yeah, it, it kind of you know, through me that some of the last scenes with these explosions felt so not real. Right. Felt so like it was a hero's movie, but a hero's movie in a way that removed me from it, which I think is what video games ultimately do purposefully or not. Um, But I'm in the midst of, uh, we're in the midst of this play, The Lifespan of the Fact, and it's been having me think a lot about happening truth and story truth. Mm. And there is a world with this movie that story truth felt more important. And so the splashes of people of color and the fact that they did feel so much older than the young white boys going to war felt to me like story truth choices Mm -hmm. that the gays, G-A-Z-E, not G-A-Y-S, felt 
so of the body of the young white boy that mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise it didn't surprise me that those guys looked or felt older to him because mm-hmm. that's I think the way it was even then. Um, but it 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 left me. I kind of hope that the paranoia that. 1917, having won the Golden Globes uh, and may overshadow Parasite, actually takes hold. Because I think, to your point about it it feeling not significant, I think it is. It is one of those movies that, if it were to win the Oscar, would disappear, right? We wouldn't go, oh, yes, that Oscar-winning film, 1917. Right, and it comes along, I think, at at that juncture, that Parasite represents something entirely different, which is a lot of the Academy members, actually, if they feel that the avalanche is coming, that the excitement of having something that nobody guessed and, and it's sort of cool movie, even if it's got subtitles, even if it's Korean, whatever, that that they want it to win because it, like it, it's a curious counterpoint to the, the uh, all-white Oscars kind of thing in a way. It, not directly parallel to that, but it, it's something that is one of these undercurrents that, that takes place. And just uh, in, in terms of um, 1917, I think that um, Sam Mendes is a filmmaker who likes to create a a universe of his own choosing, as it were. And my favorite example of that is American Beauty, which mm-hmm. I know a lot of people love that film, but I really didn't <laughs> like it. I, I, There were many things in it which were really, to me, stereotypical and exploitive of women and certainly of gay people. Uh, it, it was a sort of like, I know better than you are, you do kind of director. And there are elements of this in that, I think. I want to just say one more little clip here just so you can hear the voices of the two leads. Although before I do that, I wanted to say that to your point, Tanisha, and this is a point I think made by Stephen Metcalf on Slate Culture Gabfest, that there, it's a video game also in the sense that it kind of up levels. You know, you get through one thing, you know, and then <laughs> yes, you, yeah, totally. you can, you, if you're still alive, you get to try like another thing, totally. you know, and then you get to try to try another thing. I, I just and before, how the world un- unravels. Right. Sorry. And it's, before we run out of time, I just want to say I, I probably like this movie better than most of what I'm hearing here. And I mean, oddly enough, we saw it in the opposite of watching on a phone. We saw it on the BTX format, which is like too big in some ways and too loud the way that it was set up. Um, but it was almost the person I saw it with was sort of she was kind of saying, you know, I almost can't handle this. Just it's coming at me too much. So that sort of argues for James's point that. The scale kind of works in a different way. When you get it that big, it's almost like an assault. Uh, well, let's hear a little. I just want to sort of play a little clip where you can hear the two leads. Uh, they are played uh, by uh, Dean Charles Chapman, uh, known to some of you as uh, Tommen uh, in, uh, in Game of Thrones. There's two Game of Thrones characters uh, in here because Rob Snow also appears uh, right mm-hmm. at the end. Uh, Rob Stark, excuse me, uh, appears at the end. George McKay uh, as Lance Corporal Schofield. Uh, here's a little bit of their dialogue. Did you hear that story about Wilco? How he lost his ear? Not in the mood. Keep your eyes on the trees, top of the ridge. Bet he told you it was shrapnel. What was it then? Well, you know his girl's a hairdresser, right? And he was moaning about the lack of bathing facilities when he wrote to her. Remember those rancid jakes, Harris? Anyway, she sends him over this hair oil. <laughs> Smells sweet. 
like golden syrup. Wilco loves the smell, but he doesn't want to cast it around in his pack. So he slathers it all over his barnet, goes to sleep, and in the middle of the night, he wakes up, and a rat is sitting on his shoulder, licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics, and he jumps up, and when he does, the rat bites clean through his ear and runs off with it. No. <laughs> All right, so, um, so Irene, I don't think I've heard from you how you felt about this yeah. movie. Um, well, first of all, yeah, as a as a as an unsophisticated visual viewer in terms of the things James was talking about, I was just sucked into the story itself, and um, I appreciated the way it didn't seem like a like I thought it was really cool to see the trenches, like oh, that's what they look like. I didn't imagine them that high when I read about them in novels, you know, and it sort of made sense with all the sandbags and everything. So I thought that was really interesting, but it, just the torture of you know, going through that, I thought was interesting. But I, I've also I've just been thinking about the way men and women, to lose to use some you know ridiculous generalizations, perceive of intimacy or want intimacy. And so it made so what I was thinking about throughout the movie was the idea of how intimate how these men kind of you know like what the how how what intimacy meant to them and how intimacy was was sort of fostered and generated between the two of them. And it just seemed very extremely male, like, like most war movies do, but in a way that I kind of I thought was interesting because it wasn't really heroic. It was just kind of like, well, here you are. You're in this situation. There's nothing you can do about it. And you just have to keep going because there's nothing you can do. So it wasn't, it didn't, and I sort of like that sort of non-heroic. It wasn't really... You know, it was just like these two guys and they're there and what are they going to do? They have no choice. They're just doing it, you know, and 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 then what happened, you know, just like what what happens between them, I thought was kind of interesting. So I was kind of moved by that in terms of the the the, the story. I, I, w- I will say that, you know, there is a kind of um, Odyssey-like uh, quality to this story uh, and that one of the few scenes that does involve a woman at all does have almost the quality of temptation, right? Uh, you know, almost a timey-to-the-mast quality because she's saying, stay here, and there's a baby, and there's warmth, and there's at least a moment, a pause, uh, an artificial sense of safety a- at this moment, you know, and, and because he's on this kind of almost, you know, um, iconic style hero's quest. That's true. He so that was heroic. No. That was that was that was heroic. I admit. I agree. Um, we probably should stop here, but the movie's 1917. You might want to wait until James gets it so you can see it on a great big uh, yes, screen. Yes, it would be, oh, it'd be so good. I mean, it is very yeah. painterly. I mean, yeah, it, it, is. it is. There's a way in which uh, Deacons, once he gets going, uh, makes uh, horror and hell very beautiful and interesting to look at. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, so you might you, you probably want to see it. You might want to see it before the Oscars. You might, wait, might want to wait till James gets it. Uh, in any case, James does have Jojo Rabbit coming up uh, starting Sunday. So you know, if you're piling up your Oscar films, you can do that. Uh, All right, let's take a break and we'll come back. Uh, today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, as previously noted, and uh, I have to s- shout him and Bitsy Kaplan out. They have been working to try to keep the Colin McEnroe show on the air while we put out Pardon Me, which is, requires the effort to do like two and a half 
uh, Colin McEnroe show episode. So it's been difficult. And as soon as the show is over, we're going to move into sort of recording and editing some new stuff for Saturday at noon. Uh, and that's when that drops. And pardon me, another damn impeachment show is also available as a podcast. So uh, so please uh, check uh, check it out. Kion Wolf's on the board as usual. Uh, and uh, I don't have to promote forward towards any future Colin McEnroe show episodes because I don't know when we're going to get back on the air. Um, so it's time instead to endorse and recommend things. Irene, what have you got? Okay. Well, I've just say pardon me is great. I just want to add that. But my okay. I and I saw the the movie Pain and Glory at Cine Studio recently and it's such a good movie. Don't let it go by. I mean it's just it was just a, especially for anyone who, you know, maybe is a little older and maybe thinks about depression and but it was just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, Pain and Glory. And also there's this book that I read. It's kind of like a sort of popular psychology book um, that I read in two days over the break. It's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. <laughs> and she's a therapist and she talks about some of her, the, the, you know, the people she sees, but she also reveals a lot about her own life and her the inner, like what's on the inside of a therapist. And it was actually, it was just, I found it in the library and I just read it and I thought it was really, really nicely done and very interesting and absorbing. And it makes you think about therapy and what it's for and what you get out of it. And it was kind of interesting. So right. that's it. Just to sort of recap those. Uh, so the first movie you're talking about is the new Elma Dovar movie. It stars yes. Antonio Banderas, uh, who I believe is nominated for, you know, for Best Actor, uh, Pain and Glory. And she then say the title of the job. book again because people Maybe want. you should talk to somebody and by Lori Gottlieb. Oh, I right. should. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so James, what have you got for us? Um, a, a really sort of magical sort of fantasy book that um, is also disturbing by Yoko Ogawa, a Japanese a young woman, a Japanese writer. It's called The Memory Police. Um, basically about uh, a, a, an unknown force, if you like, uh, disappearing memories and, and changing society as a result. And it's a very provocative, uh, gentle story, but very provocative, absorbing um, the Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. All right. And uh, what have you got, Tanisha? Got um, one thing, which is local papers. I mm. happened to uh, see an entertainment section that came through the mail this weekend. And I was like so psyched because Lizzo was on the cover. And I was like, oh, my God, did one of our local journalists get a chance to interview Lizzo? That's so exciting. And then I noticed that the article was from the Los Angeles Times. And I thought to myself, it's and I happened to sit in a in a newsroom, a local newsroom recently, and saw all of these empty desks. And I thought to myself, we've got to figure out how to get back to a time where local news is important. Um, I spent a lot of time dealing with folks interested in a more vibrant Hartford, a more vibrant Middletown, a more vibrant New Haven. Um, and I wonder if if real live newspapers where folks like Eliza would actually have to come and engage with with mm. the people in real life might make a difference. Kind of collaborative effort towards this revitalization we talk of. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I used to uh, work at a newspaper like that. It was the Hartford Current, I, I think, in kind of a glory day where, yeah, you could, you know, I don't know, I was sitting at my desk one day and Robert Ludlum came in and sat down at my desk and we talked for 
pile. Of, I mean, you, you, like if you you'd come through the newspaper, the actual newspaper building, if you were somebody like that. And how I got to know James actually was calling him up with various ideas I was working on as an arts and culture reporter. And I do think one of the things that really gets lost, no matter how hard the newspaper tries to cling to some of its main missions, and all these newspapers have. No, there's nobody in the newspaper business who wants to get go out of business. Um, but the arts and culture stuff, you know, has just been so hard to do. I I worked at the Current in an era where you know Malcolm Johnson sort of ooh, was a film and theater critic who presided over a whole staff of arts and culture writers, uh, which is just unthinkable now. I mean, it gets the reason you saw that Lizzo article is because from from another newspaper, there just aren't enough people to do that anymore, which is very sad. Hopefully, there's a big philanthropist somewhere with family newspaper ties and money who can mm. uh, support it both on the paper level, but also you know places like this old station. Right. All right. Well, you've left me with almost too much time uh, to do mine, but uh, so I'll just quickly mention a podcast called Bear Brook. I mentioned it, I think, a couple of days ago on the wheelhouse as well. Bear Brook is uh, done by New Hampshire Public Radio. Uh, I'm always interested in when, when some of our New England radio stations that punch above their weight. Uh, this is a remarkable one. Just to kind of give you some perspective, uh, there are, I think, 1.5 million people living in New Hampshire. Uh, there are, I think, 176,000 regular uh, listeners to uh, New Hampshire Public Radio. Bearbrook passed five million in audience size a long, long time ago. It's about a cold case, an unusual cold case, in, its, in which the search is not so much for the murder, but for the identity of these victims who have been found out in the woods in, in New Hampshire, and nobody knows who they are. And it actually leads to all kinds of interesting things. It even touched the news this week. Meriden police had a similar kind of problem, and and uh, this is I don't think a spoiler because it's been in the news, but uh, one of the things they discovered in the Bearbrook case. Case, a little bit in the Golden State Killer case and used again in this Meriden case, is that now can the contemporary genealogy industry, the kind of computer-driven genealogy industry, can help solve crimes because mm. they can begin to narrow down fields and stuff like that and also help figure out who uh, unnamed victims are. Uh, and I guess I'll use just a minute or two. Minority report. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, so Bearbrook, very worth, very bingeable, very worth listening to. Uh, and then I'll just quickly mention the, the music of Laura Nero. I'm not doing this to plug this thing that we're doing. We're going to do a show about Laura Nero and we're doing a live performance of it with Latanya Farrell and, and Steve Metcalf and Jim Chapdelaine. But it's more just to maybe spend some time with this very, very interesting songwriter who really did most of her peak composing work in about a three-year period. Uh, and then – you know, talk about sort of people with, who struggle with their fame. Then at one point just completely dropped out of the business and then re reappeared. She's enigmatic. She's interesting. A lot of the music is uh, incredibly wonderful. A lot of it is songs you know, but you don't necessarily know that they're her, her songs. So Laura Nero, check her out on your streaming service or whatever you're using these days. And thanks very much to everybody who helped out with it today, but especially to James, Tanisha, and Irene for being the nose. <laughs> <laughs> 